This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum, and welcome to the first episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns for 2023. It feels really strange saying that, considering that we're still in 2022 as I record this, um, but thank you. I hope everyone has had a really nice, relaxing Christmas and New Year's by the time this comes out, and um yeah, I'm excited for 2023, but um, enough about the excitement for the year ahead. Um, I'm excited to introduce the next couple of episodes. I caught up with um, an amazing human. Their name is Danny. They are currently doing their PhD at the moment um, at Teheringa Waka, uh, Wellington University, and their research is all about treaty education. And we'll get more into into the episode and specifically, you know, who the treaty education is for, why they wanted to research it, all that kind of stuff. Um, But we got together and we literally sat down and we spoke for just over two hours. It felt like, I honestly forgot that we were recording it, just felt like we were just catching up and I was picking their brain on all types of things so because we spoke for three hours or two hours um, the next couple of episodes you'll get to hear from Danny and we really spoke about everything we went to so many different places um, with our corridor and so this I would specifically like to introduce um, this first part of the conversation, but just speaking widely to everything that we spoke about to give you a bit of a heads up, we really go in-depth um, with about treaty education and we you know, talk about what does it look like to honour the treaty, what would... Um, you know, relationships based on titiriti look like, what would that mean, what kind of things do we have to talk about. Um, but specifically in this first episode, um, we start off the conversation about, you know, talking about why Danny got into this field of work and um, in, in part of answering that, um, they talk about their activism journey, which I think is really, really interesting that, um, you know, what happened in their personal lives and the co-papa they got involved with um, outside of, you know, your usual mahi, like uni, part-time work, et cetera, et cetera, how it all kind of came into fruition. Um, It all came into fruition for Danny when the opportunity for this PhD came about. So we really go in depth into um, Danny's activism journey. And in part of that, we do talk a lot about intersectionality. We talk a lot about solidarity. We talk a lot about... um, 
to what it means to advocate, what it means to support, what it means to be an ally, and so grateful for the whole conversation that we had. That Danny was so vulnerable and real, and you know when we're talking about all of these types of things, um, they directly lend their real life experience into this corridor. And the reason why I'm particularly grateful for for their vulnerability is the fact that, you know, I think we're told a lot of the time that, you know, you need, you know, to live an authentic life that feels true and good to you. You know, one of the one aspect of that is living by your values, but I feel like we don't actually get to hear a lot of stories where where there is that weaving together of values, um, your work, your study, your and your interests outside of all of those things um, that we do between our nine to five. And I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes that's just not a reality for everyone. I think it definitely, um, there are other ways of leading by your values, but I think we still don't hear enough stories where all those things kind of weave together and what it could look like being all weaved together as well. So I'm so grateful for um, Danny's uh, vulnerability with with sharing their story around that. Um, and also another takeaway um, for me, from especially from this first part of the conversation, um, when Danny shares their activism journey and you know how they acknowledge the intersectionalities and acknowledge that you know their activism includes um, standing up for communities with identities that they don't directly um, relate to or belong to, and um, and I think that's so powerful. Um, you know, I think we're all working towards how to be a, a better ally, and I think Danny sharing their story um, is a very powerful example of you know what what the realities of being just as loud for a community that that you don't directly relate to. Um, you know, compared to being as loud for a community that you are. Uh, you are intimately part of and um, I think that level of solidarity it takes extra um, skills and I really appreciate and really love the way that um, Danny framed empathy as a social skill in our corridor I, I think when we talk about empathy it's seen as this um, wider I don't know it's spoken about in a more general sense but when it comes to actually practicing empathy it's like well what does it actually look like and, and how do I develop that and the way that um, Danny spoke about it I was like oh that's actually a really good understanding of of what it looks like and um and also the way that Danny explained empathy, you can see how you can see how perhaps why you know there are certain identities or certain pockets of society where that skill 
isn't um well the opportunities to develop empathy as a skill isn't widely present um so I really really appreciated that um and I also really appreciated Danny's perspective on honoring the treaty what titiriti uh, or what relationships based on titiriti um could look like I think you know we're, we're definitely getting there but there is still a long way to go with um you know the general knowledge of the treaty and how it came to be and the devastating effects of the treaty on tangata whenua um i think we're slowly slowly getting there but there's still a really long way to go and um one of my key takeaways um from this conversation with Danny was a just like the the improvement that still needs to be had about how we're having the conversation around the treaty but not even the the presence or lack of like thereof of the conversation but how it's being introduced as well um like you know growing up here in New Zealand and going through the public schooling system um we would do a module on the treaty every year and i'm so ashamed to say it but i couldn't tell you really except for the bare bones basics and it wasn't until i did uh, in first year in my first year of of my law degree where we we spent an in-depth amount of time um talking about the treaty and it's so shocking i didn't even know about the declaration of independence that came before the treaty and you know once you really get in depth and you understand the context of it all you re- your eyes are just wide open to how devastating the impacts of titiriti are and then another thing that i think has been a marker of you know there has been some improvement though i will say time and time again there's still a long way to go but i think a marker of that improvement is you know now it's more common to have conversations about honoring um titiriti uh having building um relationships around that and and i think systemically but also in a more social level like what well, anyways in my sphere of of my little slice of the world um there are more conversations about honoring titiriti but even that i'm like well what does that actually look like and what does that mean and you know how can we feel supported in having that conversation and this conversation that i had um with Danny it was it honestly like cracked my brain open about more about what honoring titiriti might look like the things that we need to be talking about why it's so important um it was just so refreshing so if you want to get more involved with developing your relationship with titiriti and figuring out well, what does it look like for you to honor titiriti please tune in to what Danny has to say they are so insightful um so amazing and so humbling like 
I, and you'll hear this throughout the conversa- conversation as well, but, you know, they are so mindful of speaking to and not speaking for and acknowledging, um, you know, their lived experiences, identities, that type of thing. And it's honestly so, so refreshing. When I think about the traits of, you know, someone who is an ally or someone, I don't know, who just essentially wants to be better human, better friend, better ally. When I think about the traits of that, um, it was really highlighted in this conversation with Danny, like the sense of vulnerability, the sense of humility, the sense of being open to, you know, making mistakes. And that's something that we talk about um, during the conversation as well, but not feeling... um, you know, owning up to those um, ugly big emotions and trying to sit with them and figure out, uh, you know, what, you know, exactly what lesson am I meant to be um, learning from this? And yeah, that is really, really highlighted because I think, you know, the their research um, is specifically about, well, how do we get tangata titiriti, including um, Pākehā um, and tō'iwi communities involved with treaty education? Um, what would that look like? And um, and I think the hesitation, you know, I think for a lot of people when talking about, not even specifically just um, the treaty here, just even talking about just race relations here in New Zealand, I think a lot of people are hesitant because, you know, a well, can, for many reasons, but I think the common ones that tend to pop up is, you know, are scared of making mistakes and also should I be in this space? Am I, am I the person to be speaking up? And, you know, I think in some instances um, those who have been harmed or communities that have been harmed by systems, definitely those voices need to be um, prioritized. Um, but the thing is, um, the thing is, sometimes, you know, the reality is, is if we ever want progressive change to happen, that means all voices need to be in and everyone needs to tap in somehow in some shape or form. And, you know, that means being open to coming into the space to begin with. I feel like those hesitations and, and feelings and the, even just the potential of those those ugly emotions, and I'm labeling, labeling them ugly, not thinking that they are ugly, but, you know, the way that we're raised to, to think about them, you know, they are the ugly emotions that we just sweep under the carpet. But like shame and guilt and embarrassment, um, you need to be able to sit with those. So I really appreciate that coming through with the corridor with Danny. So please enjoy part one. Kia ora, Danny. Um, before we get into the corridor, I would so love if we could get an opportunity to get to know you a little bit more. Um, so if you could please introduce yourself. So who are you and what people, communities, lands are important to you? Kia ora. Um, so my name is Danny Pickering. Um, my pronouns are they, them, but theirs. I'm non-binary. Um, I'm Pākehā and I'm white. Um, These two aren't quite the same thing, but they're obviously very closely interrelated, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, 
my Anglo-Saxon ancestors hail from Yorkshire in England. Um, while I have a, a almost like a Celtic royal flush of sorts uh, with an, of ancestors from Wales, Cornwall, um, uh, Ireland and Scotland, and even um, the Isle of uh, Man. Um, but I know most about and are most connected to uh, my Scottish Gaelic ancestors, so those are the ones that live on the Isle of Raze in the Scottish Hebrides. Um, my sister and I, meanwhile, were um, actually born in Tamaki Makauro, Auckland, um, but we were raised in Seattle, uh, since my dad is Pākehā, but my mum's actually a white American. <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I think that was one of the things that um, when I first met you, I was like, oh, that's so interesting to grow up in New Zealand, but also have that time spent in America. And I feel like we'll, we'll touch upon that later on in the corridor, how growing up in those two places have activated your activism I suppose and your informed your understanding of race and culture and all these other intersectionalities um, but I would love to get to know you a little bit more before we get deep into the corridor sure um, so you're at a party the DJ plays blank and you're instantly on the dance floor like you hear the song and you'll run you'll run to the dance floor my all-timer will always be Florence and the Machine at this point. Oh. But, based on that sigh, I'm pretty sure you know that a lot of her songs are not necessarily dance floor tunes. No, but so, you do want to get up and just, I don't know, to do something. Yeah. So my actual pick, though, if it was a DJ playing, it would probably be Janelle Monáe. Um, oh, we were playing Janelle Monáe and we yes. were, she put, the DJ put on Queen or um, Cold War or oh, Cold War maybe it's a bit more of a, a sad tune than like a <laughs> or a bittersweet tune than like a, a dance floor and so I'll stick with Queen Queen oh. by Janelle Monáe yes 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 <laughs> good choice um, what are you currently unlearning? whiteness whiteness always always whiteness um, which again it's kind of important in the discussion today so this is a bit of a cop out <laughs> response I guess um, but yeah very true always that's current and always it's a lifelong journey isn't it mm. I think not specifically whiteness but just anything to do with unlearning you, there's always always more and it's a lifelong mm. commitment um, what are you grateful for at the moment um, my trade union, I guess. Um, I tutor at this university as well as I'm doing my PhD, so I'm really grateful to the tertiary education union and my colleagues and members who are also a part of it, um, so especially the academics, the professional staff, and the researchers in particular, because um, we are, we're all in collective bargaining with uh, the employer, um, in the last few months, and um, even the academics, you know, who are on six-figure salaries and that kind of thing, which, you know, you do need, admittedly, to be able to afford to raise a family and all of that, but they basically said to the employer, we're not accepting any offer from you until you give the tutors a better deal, so oh, that's what I'm the most grateful for right now, oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, because they, they we were, were able to recognize that, you know, it's become really hard to recruit tutors to work at this university when we're better being paid more than minimum wage with a master's degree or a PhD. Um, so um, they recognize that their working conditions are based on how many tutors they can hire to mark papers and whatnot. So there was a symbiotic sort of um, 
connection sort of re-established mm-hmm. and strengthened through this process in the last few months. I'm really grateful to um, yeah, the, the rest of the union membership for being a, being a part of that process and seeing that and building that solidarity together. And that sense of community, and that's amazing for these academics who you know who are in a position of privilege and power, right? And mm. for them to take a stand for the tutors as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, because it's like you know there is a. If, if, if you're on a permanent contract working in a university, you're damn lucky, but you're also probably turgidly overworked because the rest of us can't afford to keep doing this for a very long time, and so it's hard to re- retain, and, mm. you know, there's always a job cut, restructure, some sort of neoliberal buzzword thing happening around the corner that's just trying to cut costs and cut people. Mm. Oh, I can yep, definitely see why you'd be super grateful for that at the moment. That's amazing, that sense mm. of solidarity. And I know that you've been really involved in this co-pub and it sounds like um, there's a really wonderful and strong, thriving community around it. So, I, yeah, I can mm. understand why you'd be grateful <laughs> for that. Um, and then my last quickfire question is, if you could be any object or human, what or who would you be and why? This one took me a while, but I think I know what I'm, I'm going to say here, which is, um, I said I'm gonna, I, I want to be a tree. Oh, that would be, I, oh, it depends on where, <laughs> as a tree, where, where, and why, yeah. where you'd be located, um, that would be a lush life. Well, yeah, because I, I just think all the time about how, these days, about how thoroughly trees used to um, sort of dominate the world before humans did, right? Um, you look at Ireland or Aotearoa um, or... Um, I suppose, big chunks of the Amazon that are now gone. And you just think about how these places used to be completely covered in forest um, before humans came along. And we're talking like even um, indigenous societies that you know participated in, to some ex- to varying extents in deforestation processes to build those societies. Um, obviously, capitalist, colonial, white imperial, all this stuff that's happened in the last five centuries kind of thing has definitely taken that in a very climate changey direction mm-hmm. um, comparative to um, you know, having more symbiotic relationship with the land um, but yeah, trees used to be just the dominant force in the world and obviously we're still super reliant on them so I've just, I've been obsessed with trees <laughs> I'd be I, a tree Yeah, I honestly, every single time I go on a road trip, especially here in Aotearoa because we're just so surrounded like by, by so much land I always think that I'm like every time what would it have looked like if humans didn't touch this land what would it look like and I always come to that same conclusion of wow trees are magical beings they really are so that is an excellent and insightful answer <laughs> um, and on that note Hi to my welcome to Headscarf and Good Yarns. Thank you so much for um, introducing yourself. Nice. And um, I was really, really excited to chat. Like I, so I just need to give some context as to how I even found Danny. I was just on on the internet and one page led to another, and then I stumbled across your research. And I was like, I would love to have this human on the show and just pick your brain even more. Um, So maybe we'll begin there. Um, Would you be able to explain um, the aims of your research or what you hope to um, do with your PhD and why you wanted to pursue it as well? Sure. Yeah, no, so um, I guess I've always thought of myself as sort of um, 
not always, but I guess for most of my adult life, I've considered myself politically involved, um, either doing activism or organizing in some capacity um, for whatever social movement I suppose was most relevant to me at the time. Um, And I wouldn't have thought of it in those terms until I actually um, was doing my honors year um, here at the university um, and stumbled upon like social movement studies as a field. and I thought, hey, maybe there's a way to make use of that field and um, continue my study in that direction in ways that can benefit the movements that I've been part of. Um, so, um, yeah, early on in my adulthood, when I was first coming out as queer, um, like, you know, uh, I think my first thing I would consider like the really activisty thing I did was I um, got involved in phone banking for the um, the marriage equality campaign in Washington State. Um, so that was ref- yeah. So would you be able to explain that? Sorry, I've yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, it's um, it's like I suppose it's a bit. I'd say it's a bit more old-fashioned. Although I did a bit of it more recently for the cannabis referendum campaigning, actually. Um, but it's where you get a list of phone numbers. Um, whether that's like you shell out some money for a phone book that has like all of the residential numbers, which can be done. It just costs a bit more. Um, or probably the past one would argue now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. From, yeah, the, the yellow pages that like I, I only vaguely understand what that even is at my age. But um, uh, aside from the fact that you know they kept getting delivered year after year. But anyway, we you know you see so you have a resource like that where you have a whole bunch of people's phone numbers, um, and you kind of just go down the list and you just cold call them and talk with them about your campaign issue. Um, oh, so it's like door knocking, but the kind of door knock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, kind of door knocking, okay. but a bit more technological. Yeah, <laughs> we're not quite like social media campaigning either. Oh, yes, okay, you know, I understand. Analog era for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, but you know, for especially for um, progressive social issues, whether we're talking about like um, gay marriage or um, legalizing cannabis. Um, you know, you kind of need still need to use the old ways because that's where we're going to find you know the most conservative people that maybe need to be budged. Mm. Um, so it's still strategically useful to go use the old methods. So uh, yeah, so in 2012, um, when referendum 74, which was the name for the bill, all everything in America has really unimaginative names. It's always seven, <laughs> it's always Seventh Street, yeah. or uh, for unions, it's local 733, or um, you know, in the referendum, it's just that instead of the marriage equality bill or something like that. Like I think it was in New Zealand, right? It's very codified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I think that was my kind of first bout of activism, and I was within like the yeah within a year or so of my coming out to myself to my um, parents, to my family, to my friends, right, to the world, um, being an out person from there on out. So, like, um, and I wasn't even sure I wanted to get married, but I was, you know, it was what my friends were doing at the time kind of thing. It was like, um, and, it would, and I could see its importance because, um, you know, it's not just about, like, being recognized and seen by the state, you know. There's also, like, healthcare things. There's inheritance things. There's all kinds of, you know, material factors that play into it as well. So it was worthwhile even if... You know the the liberal interpretation of gay marriage and human rights and stuff just kind of stops there and doesn't um, look at you know the material disenfranchisement of queer communities or things like that. Um, it was still important, you know, because there was so much momentum behind it. So I got on board. Um, I obviously did not have that level of political analysis at the time. I was nineteen, um, oh, <laughs> which isn't to say nineteen-year-olds can't can't have that level of analysis. I just didn't at that point. Um, 
And um, yeah, so phone banking was just going down the list and just calling random people and asking them what they thought about the referendum, where they were planning to vote, um, sharing some facts if they, that, you know, or just you know being human and get, trying to engage them on the issues, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of my first bout of activism. Um, that led me into just sort of doing lots of queer activism in general and just thinking about it as a, in social movement terms, as like a larger movement for queer liberation um, from cis heteropatriarchy, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, but also capitalism and colonialism and so on and so forth. Oh, They're all interconnected yeah. and all of that, of course. <laughs> um, but that's what led me when I moved back to New Zealand and to Aotearoa in 2014. Um, fell into a, uh, a group I was like hey where my radical queer is at because that's where I was at I was uh, at a life stage where I didn't want to see or be seen by straight people um, which at that time I'm still going to defend I think that was pretty valid I needed to outgrow it at some stage and I did um, but at that point of your journey it's very much needed it's very much needed and you know I moved back I moved to Seattle when I was four years old so I didn't really have a social life down here I had to start from scratch anyway so I wanted to start from my safety net first right fair enough that's Um, absolutely valid so I was like hey where are my radical queers at most of them were in Auckland Um, really not yeah Ah. Uh, most of them were up there but um, at least the the ones that then became a big part of my activist life um, at least at first um, they were part of a reading group. They were reading some, you know, the usual queer theorists, um, but then stumbled upon Angela Davis, um, who was, you know, all about prison abolition in particular. And she was saying, hey, this is a like, um, prison, and, uh, prison abolition can be a queer and trans movement. Um, so the, the crew up in Auckland were like, hey, let's look into this and found, oh, yeah, corrections uh, brutalizes trans women who are in the wrong prisons that don't represent their gender and stuff. That's actually really messed up. Um, protested Corrections presence at Auckland Pride in 2015, um, which sort of catalyzed like this local sort of prison abolitionist movement in Aotearoa. Um, started an organization called No Pride in Prisons. Um, I helped catalyze the Wellington branch that kind of extended to the Auckland crews and um, invaluable mahi here from the start. Um, and now that organization's evolved into not just talking about queer and trans issues, but um, about prison issues broadly and about abolition more broadly. Um, and that's People Against Prisons Aotearoa, which, shout out, shout out. Um, um, but yeah, so, you know, so I migrated from from queer activism to this prison activism that became, you know, became very, uh, like, kind of socialist. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking at the way that, the that, you know, who's in prisons? It's always poor people. Poverty is a major driver of crime. Um, and just, you know, the prison being used as a tool of suppression of um, working people. Um, and, of course, all the other intersections thereof. Um a lot of um, the Papa membership and the people who became really close friends of mine um, were, of course, Māori. Um, and so started learning about Te Tariti and sort of mm. getting that sort of... Um, my, tre- my own treaty education kind of happened through that organisation. Um, so by the time I came to do my PhD, um, I had already done... You know, some of, my, some of my master's research was on social movements, was in social movement studies... And um, it was kind of a bit broader, high level thinking about social movements in general. But by the time I read, got to the PhD, it was like I'm ready to do specifically stuff on this particular movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer the question with all of that <laughs> extended backstory, um, the um, yeah. So my research is aiming to um, uh, work with the treaty education movement, uh, which I would define as. Um, particularly non-Māori who are educating their own, our own, um, about uh, the treaty, the history of colonization in Aotearoa, 
um, and what it might mean to be a Tiriti citizen mm-hmm. um, in Aotearoa rather than, or in addition to New Zealand, um, and how you know all of that plays out in a space where you know, we are trying to educate our own folks rather than forcing Māori to do it for us. <laughs> Yeah, because that's a huge burden to put on tangata whenua. Mm. Um, when you're so right, I think there needs to be more education um, that's not being pushed by Māori because it, it, really it's a there's a power imbalance there and it's it's exhausting mahi to do. So I think that is so interesting and so fascinating that that's the purpose of your PhD because not only is it talking about a social movement but it's you're doing it in an academic setting and Mm. so you're kind of fusing like real life experiences with this academic world and I'm Mm. sure (laughs) by the time you finish your PhD it's going to combine and make this this beautiful baby of, of life and, <laughs> and academia um, but you actually you said so much just then that I really just there's so many threads that I want to follow um, and the first thread that I want to follow is in your personal experience because it sounds like your activism you really got pulled into it um, through the queer community and that's something that you like that is your community mm. um, but as you've gotten more deeper deeper into your activism it's actually like an onion you've got all of these layers all of these intersectionalities all these identities and some of these identities may not be part of who you are as a person but the sense of solidarity and your advocacy and your commitment is I think so amazing I kind of just want to pick your brain more um, and would you be able to talk speak more to your journey or like the relationship between you finding finding out more about who you are as a person and living your authentic life and then your journey with activism, especially concerning activism where it's not directly fighting for your community, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. Mm, Yeah. So um, I think... I wonder if my journey might be a little like kind of unusual in a sense in that um, but maybe it's maybe it's not for like queer people who come into the queer community but um, when I did um, it was at a university uh, near Seattle um, and in that community um, the kind of the leaders of the queer, within the queer community were queer people of color mm-hmm. um, and so when I came into that community looking for support and stuff they were fully embracing of that um, but it was in a it was in a context in the community, and there was a cultural expectation within the community of uh, of intersectionality, um, which is a word I learned shortly after, basically, mm-hmm. um, where um, yes, we're going to embrace you, we're going to afi this part of you because you know you've not been able you've not had that experience before, but. Um, the, um, when you do, you also need to recognize that we all need to be doing that for each other, otherwise this doesn't work. Um, and so I was in a space um, where I was expected to, while I was being embraced myself, take part in the embracing of everybody else. And for me at that point, as a very white middle-class American, effectively, even though you know you can hear my accent, I was definitely othered for that in the States. Like, mm-hmm. I wasn't a whole American, but I was. I was a white American. Um, I guess still am, kind of, <laughs> um, half and half. Um, but, um, you know, those were social skills I fundamentally did not have as a middle-class white American was that ability to, um, you know, uh, embrace people while we're all struggling together. 
Yes. Oh. That was new for me. It was, a, it was a new experience. Well, it wasn't a new experience, but doing it together was, and it was a new social skill that I realised I had to develop um, in order to you know, get the support from this community that I needed. I need to give as much as I got. Um, well, you've it was, honestly blown <laughs> my mind right now because that actually is such a um, beautiful way of putting it. Actually, that that you have to embrace other embrace others, and what you said about it was a so, social skill that you just hadn't really had an opportunity to develop. Mm. And it actually, when you put it that way, that is so correct. Like <laughs> when we are sitting in our, and it's not that there's anything inherently evil or malicious about this but we all have our own biases because we're living in our own experience and so therefore there will be some things that we've just never really had to understand or come to terms with or even let it be in our periphery but when something comes into your periphery and it's not something that you immediately have to understand because it's not part of your lived experience it really is a social skill to to have that empathy um, and that curiosity to then reach out and be like I may not experience but I empathize yeah and, I, and I'm standing in solidarity with you and I think there are certain communities or groups of people where collectively that skill there's never opportunity really or re- rare opportunities to develop that oh my gosh it's such <laughs> a um, that you just hit the nail on the head that really mm. is that is the skill of solidarity is yeah it mm. very much is a social skill mm. and oh. it's uh, you know and it's um, I think there have been times in history where our communities um, didn't need to develop it was organic it was just a part of being a part of a collective right um, whereas yeah I know I know it was very much um a part of being white and being middle class that these things, you know, and being understanding our our mutual dependency on each other for our survival or our liberation um, uh, you know, those things aren't priorities when you're white and middle class um, they are when once you're, when, once you add queer into that mix or any sort of marginalized identity into that mix I suppose um, but, you know, so, so that skill was taught to me in terms of like I was able to understand you know, I've been, I went through hell because of, like, you know, being queer and going through, you know, a public schooling system um, and, all, and, all, and, and through a church and all of that. And so, um, you know, that sucked and it was difficult and it was a struggle for me. Um, the, the, I think where it gets more nuanced and it gets trickier, right, is when we are starting to use that to, to do the empathy, like you say, mm. um, to, you know, uh, to an extent I can empathize, you know, with, um, with the experience of marginalization. I can't, I can't necessarily understand what, that's, what, that ex- what it's like to be marginalized for being black, for instance, for being moldy um, in a white supremacist society, right? So um, I think there's a fine balance to be struck between... Um, you know, cultivating that skill of, of, of um, that social skill of um, being able to support each other through our different but overlapping struggles, but recognizing that they're overlapping struggles and not the same struggles necessarily. Mm, absolutely. And while we're just talking about empathy as a social skill, I think it's really important to develop it in a really healthy, genuine way because, you know, it's a very slippery slope. You know, you could fall into maybe white saviorism, or you could fall into 
Okay, actually, the thing that I'm just thinking about in my head, do you know those Drew Believe videos where they get people from like opposing or like supposed opposing um, viewpoints and they get them to um, have a conversation around certain prompts? So the, the one that the video that I'm talking about is they had a transgender community versus conservative woman community. <laughs> and they, they read these prompts and they had to just kind of have a discussion around whether or not they agreed with these prompts. And one thing that was so, that just came through so clearly is that there, there was one person from the transgender um, community and I think and they're very valid in their emotions because it's a struggle that I can never understand. But you could see that the way that they had um, developed the social skill, it was with the mindset of, I'm a victim here, and I, can, I, can, I can't have these kind of conversations without emotion just overriding everything. Mm-hmm. And then there was another person who was part of the transgender community and another woman from the conservative um, group, um, and they, you could tell they had cultivated the skill of like solidarity in a way where they could then also have conversations and acknowledge their differences and acknowledge the the overlapping struggles or and, and have a, a deep thorough conversation about it. So, yeah, just while we're talking about empathy as a social skill, I think we also have to be mindful about how do we develop it in a way that does lead to healthy, productive, genuine conversations and mm. not just being, I don't know, blinded by whatever it is, whether it's white saviorism or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, and that's like, um, maybe circling back to the PhD topic a little bit, um, like that's a huge part of like treaty edu- what treaty education tries to do, right? Um, I, I kind of think of that as like this social and political project where... Um, I think yes, ultim- like maybe ultimately, and maybe in a broader sort of social justice language, you know, we are trying to teach that that social skill of just some basic human empathy because there's so many filters applied, like filters of whiteness, coloniality, being cisgender, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, I suppose in in the context of like indigenous and settler relationships, um, I'd see the project as just being able to see relationally. So. Um, so what treaty education tries to do in part um, is uh, see, yeah, teach people to be able to see relationally. And what I mean by that is like, um, is that like uh, white supremacy and just uh, whiteness in general um, conditions us to, uh, it, it, it affects our epistemology, which is a really fancy academic word, which is basically um, how we know what we know. Mm. So, in other words, whiteness, um, you know, as a filter, it affects how we view the world. Um, and how we view the world as white people is um, we don't see how we're related to everything else. We are individuals, right? Because, you know, that's, all about, that's what the Western Enlightenment was all about five centuries ago. It was about, you know, um, you know that's, where, that's where this liberal idea came about, where everything is about individuals. Um, it's one person in one vote. Uh, everybody drives a car. Fuck trains. <laughs> Fuck public transport. Right? We don't have my own car. Uh, but also, like, um, but yeah, you can also just see that in, in, in how it plays out in interpersonal relationships too. Um, where, um, but what it doesn't account for, and fundamentally can't, or it undermines itself, um, 
is whiteness can't see that it depends on having people of color to other in order to um, like keep reproducing itself to keep being to be white you have to have an other to compare that whiteness to right so um, so whiteness pretends that that's not the case basically to sort of shore up its defenses mm-hmm. um, to consolidate its power um, and so um, yeah so partly what treaty education does um, is uh, for Pakeha at least of course um, and, and other white people is uh, you know try to find some cracks in that armor um, and get people to see relationally and to understand you know our presence in this country is not the product of enterprising individuals that were our, happened to be our ancestors mm-hmm. um, our presence in this country is uh, predicated on a Tariti relationship with the Manafinua with the indigenous people here um, and we've always been in relationship with them for as long as we've been here um, and so the task is to teach people to see that and that's almost a precondition for um, that social skill of empathy because to have empathy you need to have some degree of understanding it's not just sympathy right mm, mm, um, yes and if you come you know if you have some marginalized background whether you are um, queer or a woman but you're still Pakeha for instance or maybe you're disabled but you're still Pakeha um, you know, there's a lens. There's a lens that can help with that empathy because of your shared experience of marginalization. But we also need to talk to the able-bodied cis-hair white men, because who's got? <laughs> you know, um, on on top of like you know the fact that they're a huge chunk of the CEOs and the you know the big capitalists that are really <laughs> running the world are them. Um, there's also a lot of them in the general population, and we need to be engaging and and not appealing to them but engaging with them and um, teaching them to see relationally as much as we need to everybody else the challenge is they don't necessarily have that shared frame of marginalization that um like that like white queers do that white disabled people do and so on so um but that but that doesn't make them off the table and it, it, it may make the task more difficult but it doesn't make it any less important absolutely and like also even having that shared identity of being marginalized in my experience of being, you know, a, a black woman here in Aotearoa, um, in places and spaces and people that I thought I'd, I'd expect to find some kind of solidarity, hinging on the fact that, you know, there's that shared, marginalised identity or experience, it hasn't been there. And so I think um, that's, uh, yeah... It's important that you're. It's 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 awesome to hear that you're thinking about. Well, how do we get everyone involved, regardless mm. of whatever identities that person may carry? How can we get everyone involved in this conversation? Because you're right. Even if it may be harder with um, particular identities to begin with, it is very much worthwhile pursuing that. Um, with we've been talking a lot about. Um, with titiriti, when people say um, honouring the treaty, as someone who um, works in this space, studies in this space, and advocates in this space, um, what does honouring the treaty um, look like and mean to you? <laughs> um, that's the big question, right? That's the million dollar question. Um, I won't even be able to answer that at the end of my PhD. Um, <laughs> But I guess the part of the answer is that I could never do it alone, right? Mm. Um, and um, 
you know, it's not up to Tangata Tariti, so us, to sort of determine what happens in sort of the Tangata Whenua space of the treaty relationship, mm-hmm. right? Um, and conversely, Tangata Whenua have been clear through things like the big Matike Mai report on constitutional transformation um, that they won't tell us what to do in the Tangata Tariti space as mm-hmm. long as what we're doing um, is upholding Tino Rangatiratanga and Manamotuhake. Um, and so, um, and then again, conversely, like the, um, part of the reason they're not dictating what our side of the treaty relationship needs to look like um, is because the treaty granted us kawangatanga, right? Or the right for the, the queen and the crown to govern the Pakeha who are here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that environment has shifted demographically and therefore enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's, a, there's still a reciprocity there. There's a relationship um, and so, um, yeah, like that, that's, and that's what it, it used to look like is, the, is each sort of, yeah, embracing the other, um, having empathy for the other, um, and not getting in its way when it's trying to develop. So, um, you know, while, you know, the Maori nationalism, I guess, um, you know, we're getting things in the last couple of decades like, um, you know, like the Kurakaupapa. Um, the kohangareo, the so like the schooling systems that are in Maori medium edu- like a Maori medium education, um, but you've also got like he- healthcare options now that are starting to develop that are sort of specific for Maori, mm-hmm. um, and uh, those kinds of things. Like in a proper treaty relationship, they would have the full resourcing and capacity to develop those things to meet the needs of their people. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the situation is not so politically cut and dry. <laughs> Um, because you know we don't live in a society that adequately honors Tetriti yet. Thank you so much for bringing up that point of, you know, tangata whenua are not going to try to dictate tangata Tetriti and vice versa. Um, when you were saying that point, I think one thing that I've, I think this is just like a, it's not it doesn't happen specifically just in this space, but one thing that I've. Um, picked up time and time again is this idea of and I'm not saying that this is what everyone in the majority thinks as well I just want to put that out there as a disclaimer but one pushback that I've had multiple people tell me um, and I've just picked up on it in the environment as well as they're taking from us as if there's this idea of you know something that rightfully belongs to us is being taken away um so i think it's really wonderful that you've actually pointed out there's no one's dictate no one's going to be dictating anyone Mm. but there actually is this form of relationship and respect and empathy to one Mm. one another in relation in relation to to each other as opposed to you know something's being taken away this idea of a loss this yeah. Uh, yeah the sense of loss yeah and that that like you could even simplify that further into like the basic social justice idea of like you know when you're privileged um like ceding some of that to people feels like a threat feels like an attack mm. um the example that came to mind of like recent political goings on um that fits that dynamic you just described is like the three waters legislation oh gosh um, no. you know where that's about that's code that you know that's you know, as as without going into too much detail about it, like you know, that's a that's a um, a co-governance endeavor to some extent, right? Mm. Um, and yet, um, which is 
what Tetsuriti was always going to be about. Um, Tetsuriti was always going to be about the treaty. We can debate because those are two very different documents. Um, but Tetsuriti was always about yeah that that sort of um, having our own spaces to advance the needs of our own people mm-hmm. or to meet the needs of our own people's kind of thing. And so um, free waters isn't like my by my understanding is an endeavor to do that. But of course. Um, what it means is challenging the authority of um, where the crown is now, where the government is now, which is deeply, deeply entrenched and um, as a as a colonial state. Um, so you know, people who are invested in that see this um, seeding of political power, sharing it still. So you know, it's not like it's 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 not it's not a Maori dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. There's a sharing of power, and it's done more relationally rather than ironically enough, like dictating, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the colonial state saying, okay, we're doing it this way, and iwi Māori going, how does that help us? Mm. Crickets kind of thing, right? So um, there's, yeah, it's like when, there's a much shorter and better way of saying it, I can't remember now, but it's something to do with, like, when you're experiencing privilege, um, something, 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 it feels like being attacked. I just can't remember how it actually goes, but it's really, I think it's a useful condensation of, like, or reframing, I guess, of what's happening at a at a societal level in in kind of interpersonal terms. Mm. Um. Yeah, it, yeah, you're right. There is this like sense of um, being attacked, um, and it's really confronting when that happens. Actually, mm. like I've always um, been very comfortable with just like this association of I. Uh, there are a lot of identities that I have that aren't super privileged. But um, in adult years, I've really realised there actually are quite a few places where I do have privilege. And I distinctly remember that moment where I really felt challenged in that and it felt like an attack. And I really had to sit with that uncomfortable feeling mm. um, and realise where that was coming from. But... Um, yeah, I have the same experience almost where it was like... Because um, my sort of... Um, political sort of conscientization process Um, you know there was that uh, queer community at my old university that was led by queer people of color and there was sort of that social contract in that space of um, we will support we will embrace you you need to learn how to embrace everybody else so that this thing works for all of us Mm. um and so through that experience, I got to learn a lot about a lot of just, you know, basic tenets of social justice in ways that weren't confrontational, um, while, you know, learning about how confrontation is part of the education. Yet that confrontation never seemed to really happen for me. Mm. Um, and then the same thing happened when I moved here and I found my radical queers and we were kind of, and then the, the process kind of began again in a, in, a, in, um, in a way that was kind of specific to this part of the world. Um, but again, those the confrontational moments were actually pretty few and far between for me, um, which was uh, yeah not how I was taught to expect it to play out. And yet maybe it was just that you know I was trying to be more receptive of other ways of thinking and recognizing the limitations to my own thinking that enabled that a bit more. I'm not sure, but um, but yeah no. But I have been confronted at other times, and it's it's um, rem- it's such a useful and valuable humble, re- humbling reminder um, of, of the limitations of our own knowledge as individuals that uh, yeah just so 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 invaluable um, especially when it comes to again circling back to like um, a core principle of like the treaty education movement being about bringing the whole family with us and recognizing that for some people um, 
it's always going to feel like an attack because you've got every sort of privileged access of identity you can think of. <laughs> Those people do exist, and so, you know, how do we reach them? We need to understand what it's like to feel like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's something that I feel like, well, when I first kind of got into activism, activism as well, um, uh, identity or a community that I was like, I have zero empathy for you. <laughs> um, but I, I don't want to see or be seen by straight people. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I have, um, I've learned to soften because you're so right. We need to bring the whole family with us um, if we want any kind of progressive change. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.